You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and it's June, and I'm wearing white jeans like it was a job requirement all the time. Ketchup stains notwithstanding, white jeans make me happy. Our guest last week, Kim France, wrote in a recent blog that she is cursed with spilling her coffee on her summer whites, but proactively carries a stain stick with her. It seems like an obvious idea, and yet, you know, you can see it at her girlsofacertainage.com blog. With this job of blogging and potting, you'd be amazed how many hours I need to put it all together. I used to have a daily radio talk show in which I touted myself as the best-dressed woman in radio. That was a joke, of course. Most days, I'm the least-dressed woman in radio, but considering there are a bajillion podcasts, and many of them originate from people's bedrooms, I'm sure that's not true. I want you to know that I come to our studios at thefieldtv.com fully dressed. Lisa Grunwald-Adler is here with us today. It amuses me no end that we technically met through our children, though we have a whole history of similarities and synchronicities and probably went to sleepaway camp together. And I can't wait to talk to her and to hear her five things. But here are mine. Number one, say something bunny. This is a play and I made reservations for it. It's off, 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 off Broadway, and maybe two more offs to suggest how remote, small, and off the beaten path it is. It's on the second floor of a little building in the Meatpacking District, and there are only 20 seats per performance. What it is, is you're watching a fantastic performer named Allison Kobayashi, who never at any point introduces herself, very humble about who she is, who in real life received as a gift an old-fashioned tape recorder that was so old, a friend of hers bought it at an estate sale, that it used wire, not tape. It was made before tape was invented, and it was wire. I've never heard of it or seen it. She figured out how to use, how to play it, and she heard people talking. And over time, it became her mission to figure out who these people were and what their story was. And it's an incredible performance, and you feel like you are an archaeologist with her, and you grow very fond of this just ordinary family that she hears them, you know, teasing each other at the dinner table. And also quite impressed with her research skills, and I think you'll like it. And I know our guest Lisa Grunwald would like it. Number two, Alex Trebek. Now, I can honestly say I have spent almost zero moments of my life thinking about the host of Jeopardy. Zero moments is probably pretty accurate. I did once have a dream, this may be TMI, but I once had a dream in which I was the bride walking down the aisle and was surprised and a little embarrassed that Alex Trebek was going to marry us. And I actually said in the dream, what is I do? And then I woke up. But the way he has talked about his illness, I think it's stage four pancreatic cancer, the way he's working as much as he can while he goes through treatment for it, his humility and gratitude are noteworthy, impressive, and I just 
am now a big admirer of his and wishing him the best. And I, I think I read that his reaction to the chemotherapy or whatever is unusually good and his prognosis could be better than we had thought. So all good feeling about Alex Trebek. Number three, the bandolier phone carrier system, or it's called bandolier. Okay, here's the good news. Two of my best friends have been wearing their cell phones on a leather strap as a kind of a crossbody bag for years. At various times, they recommended I get one. And they're made by a company called Bandolier. And I never wanted one, but I had two close calls when I almost lost my phone, so I thought I'd try it out. The bad news is the internet sort of figured it out all by itself because out of the blue, one day I started receiving emails and promotions about Bandelier, even on Instagram. And that sort of freaked me out. Does the internet know what a loser I am? Are they actually in my brain? Zuckerberg, get the hell out of there. Anyway, I bought the bandolier, and I like it. I mean, I don't always want to carry that around my shoulder, but when you wear it, your hands are free, so you don't have to worry about it when you're taking the subway. In particular, it's good on the subway, so it's made my top five. Number four, people who respond to emails in a timely fashion. Now, this is becoming rare, and... I have to say, when I hear back from someone quickly, particularly an editor that I have queried, or actually anyone, I really enjoy it. I even enjoy a quick rejection because it shows respect. When you submit an idea or an article and you don't hear back for a while, not only does it show that nobody cared to read it, but it also means that you can't submit it elsewhere and, and people are holding you up. And people are getting worse and worse. The more ways there are to connect, the worse people are at connecting. And we all know that's true. And when people don't respond at all, that's just unacceptable. So those of you who respond to emails quickly may not be the same day, but as soon as you can, hats off to you. Number five for this week is graduation ceremonies. I love graduation. I cry at graduations. It's so me, isn't it, that I would cry at a graduation? It's such a happy occasion. I'm so touched by all the people I've seen in New York the last few weeks in their mortarboards and gowns, trailed by family members. Some days I just see individuals on the subway or on the street, and I feel like, oh, they shouldn't be alone. They should be celebrating. I mean, think about it. Some days just heading off to school is onerous. You know your classmate is mad at you, or you could have written a better paper, or there'll be a pop quiz, or a headlights outbreak, or a, an embarrassment in the gym, or the locker room. Anyway, every day is challenging. And then there's a ceremony to celebrate the end. I'm tearing up right now. Please welcome Lisa Grunwald. Lisa Grunwald is here in the studio and she is, I'm going to say, a newish friend that I adore who I would not have met were it not for my child, Exhibit C, and her friendship with your son, John. And all the times that my daughter would go to your house, she'd say, Mommy, she is exactly, you have so many similarities. The name, of course. Writing, of course. 
foreign-born fathers, yes. Uh, same taste, yes. Yes. Same glasses, always. <laughs> same hair, same hair. And hello, we went to sleepaway camp probably together, and remember same. the same people. Yes. So it was fate that we met again as adults. I'm convinced we met as kids. We had to have. Oh. The same vacation spot. Same vacation spot. They walk alike. They talk alike. <laughs> at times they even walk what, what, what else did they do alike? <laughs> but they're the cousins. Identical. Exactly. We should stop this now. Okay, I mean, we're really, stopping but it. But obviously, same favorite Patty Duke song. Yeah, same yeah. favorite Patty Duke song. I mean, a lot of a lot of similarities. The difference, many differences between us, of course, one of which is that only one of us wrote a great novel <laughs> that was published, that will be published this week, in fact, and it's The Other Lisa, and it's called Time After Time, and thank you for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. So, stealthily, <laughs> over the course of a long time, you wrote a novel that is a kind of old-fashioned romance spoiler alert, weepy <laughs> romance that is so satisfying and is set in New York and has no, not one mention of Prada, not <laughs> one mention of uh, a Brazilian <laughs> or Keratin or Louboutin, and it is so vivid and so dreamy. And it is kind of a dream of a, of a story, isn't it? It requires willing suspension of disbelief, and in that sense, yeah, it's a, definitely it's a dream. It's uh, very dependent on, um, on believing that magic is possible, whether in love or in life. Now, you, you, you. I read the the version I read was the galleys, which right. had some conversation with you yeah. at the end, and you said that. This that your relationship with your husband has a lot to do with how you came up with Nora and Joe. Is there a way to talk about that without giving too much of the book away? I think so, and okay. possibly without giving too much of Stevens and my life away also. <laughs> oh, um, good point. <laughs> uh, okay, so Nora and Joe have a relationship that depends for... Uh, supernatural, semi-supernatural reasons on their being pretty much stuck in one place when they are together. Nora can't leave for reasons that I hope will be intriguing, uh, the confines of Grand Central Terminal. Uh, this is, by the way, set in the 30s and, for the most part, in the 30s and 40s. So she can't leave the terminal. And Joe can. Joe has a fuller life as a consequence than Nora does. And the reason that this bears some similarity to my life with my husband, Stephen, is that I have, I was diagnosed 10 years ago with multiple sclerosis. And I think between my the various health issues that that has posed and the fact that I'm a writer, I spend a great deal of time in one place. So Stephen goes to all sorts of things uh, a lot for work. He's uh, editor-in-chief of Reuters. And he has to do all sorts of travel and go to various dinners and really fascinating, fun stuff. And like Nora, I get to 
cheer him on as he does these things, but I also uh, don't get to join him in them. Uh, so the combination of love and, to some extent, sacrifice on both our parts is very much uh, reflected in the novel. The weird thing is that I was writing the novel for truly for about a year and a half before it dawned on me that this was something I knew about. And um, I was I was actually with a, a really close one of my best friends, Betsy Carter, who is also a novelist. Also, oh, I know her. Yeah. Also a lapsed <laughs> journalist, as, as I am. And um, she and I both give each other pages to read as we're writing the novels we write. And Betsy was over at my place one afternoon, and uh, I was trying to figure out what Nora should do. I mean, once she's figured out what her situation is and what her limitations are, she has to do something. Right. And um, I, I was telling this to Betsy, and I said, well, I mean, what do you do? What can you do if you're stuck in one place? And Betsy sort of pointed to the pages <laughs> in front of me and said, oh, I don't know, you could maybe be an artist or write or something like that. So um, that was when I figured out that I was writing about my situation. And anyway, and also, by the way, Stephen's situation, because it is not easy to be married to somebody who has a disease that is um, not going away anytime soon. Uh, I mean, never. He has to limit what he can do and has to go out and do things alone, uh, which, I, as I said, I always urge him to do that within reason and uh, with certain limitations um, that are based on the marital vows. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, so that Joe has to choose to be with Nora in a way that um, Stephen continually chooses to be with me. Well, the the love that these two characters have for one another, they're, they're from, unlike you and your husband, they're from different sides of the track. Nora comes from the most privileged Turtle Bay, Brownstone, private schools, debutante, a year in Europe, all that. Uh, and she's gorgeous and confident. And Joe is a working class guy who actually works on the train system um, at the station, um, and he, he he what what they have is just true true love, and I guess that's part of why I love the book because you know there's in this mean gaming each other world in which we live, here are two people who shouldn't have fallen in love, but did. And they did sacrifice for one another all the time. And there's some ultimate moments that are just extraordinary. Thanks for saying that. Um, the notion of two people who shouldn't be together, shouldn't really fall in love. It's an implausible thing that they stay in love. Um, I, I find, find that irresistible as an idea, and I guess in a way also um, part of my life, because Stephen and I met on a blind date and uh, got engaged three months later. So that's pretty implausible. Yeah, and if our kids did that, we wouldn't be... 
Well, who I'm, knows? I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> I am. It's just a matter of time. I That's mean, we, it. We were born to be mothers-in-law, is all I'm saying. Well, all I'm saying is that they're all laughing in the control room. <laughs> yes, but they don't know how serious I am. Well, I, I have to tell you, being a mother-in-law is is delicious for me right now, but you know, I'm always wondering, does she like me? Yeah. Does she really like me? Or yeah. is she just, you know, waiting for me to... Yeah, I know. Um, the the mother-mother-in-law thing is... I mean, the daughter-mother-in-law thing is a complicated relationship. We know this. In fact, when I knew that I was going to have a son, I was briefly, before I met him, um, miserable because I thought, show me a relationship between a man and his mother... Uh, or a man and his mother-in-law that you would really, where you would really want to be the the female partner in hey, this. Hey, you and your son have that relationship. And by the way, the idea that your son wrote to you, wrote you notes in the voices of Joe and Nora urging you to finish the book is so touching. He was amazing. He's such a nice guy. God, he but says, that's really over and above. He did. He there were two. He sent me when I there was a moment where I was really struggling. Well, there were plenty of moments when I was struggling with the book because you struggle with a book. That's, that's what you sort do. Sort of what you do. But at one particular lull, uh, he sent me a postcard, an old postcard of Grand Central. I mean, nineteen forties style with the hand tinting and everything, and he wrote. Um, we're at Grand Central and we're missing you so would you please come visit and it was signed Joe and Nora oh my god which slayed me of course and then when I finished um, and actually handed the book in and had that moment of uh, delight that you have when you finish something um, he sent me flowers and he sent me a card that said, thank you for finishing our story. Oh. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Okay, I love my son, but <laughs> that just, I don't... Uh, yeah, I know. Oh, wow. I know. You wow. just put that one under... Oh, okay. Well, that's incredible, and and kudos to you for raising such a fine young man. I had the material to work with, as they say. Now, let me ask you about Grand Central. Oh, yeah. To me, it's a magical place, Um, and there are always corners that one discovers when one either has too much time in the station or has to go to the bathroom and find (laughs) one in a restaurant or not in the in yeah. the in the you know pee in the on the ground <laughs> and um it's it's just an extraordinary piece of architecture that for a brief moment we got to see sort of nakedly when the building in front of it on Madison from Vanderbilt to Madison was raised right. uh, first of all how long did it take to build well, I think it started in 1905, either that or, or 03, and it was finished in 1913. So it was many years, and it was built over the previous terminal. 
um, where there was a train shed and the trains were above ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they had to keep the trains running while they were building it. And it's an incredibly complicated piece of engineering and um, was apparently um, a real breakthrough at the time in that it was built for to run on electricity, and so trains could be underground, and so there wouldn't be steam and smoke and ashes and coal and all of the things that, that had caused so much trouble and congested New York in the early days. And um, it's, a, it's just a brilliant building and a brilliant piece of engineering. And the more I studied it, um, the more amazed I was by how, how prescient the designers were. The, it's famous for its ceiling mural, which is the sky. And it's, I mean, it's extraordinarily beautiful, but you reveal something that a lot of New Yorkers know, which is the sky is backwards. Yeah, it's not only backwards, but within it being backwards, there's one constellation that's flipped and is, and is actually correct. So it's wrong on so ma- in so many ways but beautiful in so many ways. And um, the explanation that the Vanderbilts, who uh, were the owners of the station, of the terminal, I've got to make that clear in a second too, uh, gave was that the artist was painting it as in Renaissance times as uh, the heavens were seen from by God, right. from above, and that's why it was backwards. And this is a ridiculous explanation, and no one really bought it. But it, you know, for a while, it it carried some weight, and it doesn't matter because it it's matter. just so beautiful. It is. Are you surprised when you go there to see how many people go there just to have their pictures taken, or how many brides and grooms go there to have their pictures taken? Or, I'm always surprised. There's almost always a bride and groom. They Not just to have their pictures taken, but they get married there. People get married in Grand Central. Um, One of my best friends got engaged in Grand Central. Wow. I mean, it's just a romantic place. It is romantic, but it's, it's a train station or terminal. Yeah. This is me being a stickler, but when when I first started talking to researchers and historians about Grand Central Station, they kept correcting me, no, it's Grand Central Terminal. Grand Central Station was the name of the post office and is also the name of the subway station, the stop, Grand right. Central Station. Right. The big building that we love and know is the terminal. Oh, I guess that's why it says GST. <laughs> or, or GCT, if you, or, if you I want. mean GCT, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Spelling. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, that's exactly why. It's the it's a terminal. It's the terminus of the central line. It's where the trains stop, and then they go again. But it's not a station. And the funny thing is, I, I couldn't... I mean, this is just me being... Uh, for the book, anyway, trying to dot all my I's and cross all my T's. And the irony of trying to be that specifically factual in a time when facts are disappearing left and right has not escaped me. I mean, I'm making absolutely sure that everyone says terminal instead of station when, well, we know what some of the the more important facts are that are getting lost in, in the shuffle. Well, you know what? The more we hew to them the more likely it is that it'll have a ripple effect, I suppose. One hopes. One of the most uh, enchanting parts of, of the novel, again, it's called Time After Time, is that the people who work at Grand Central are a community. 
in the book. And whether it's the guy in the lost and found or the coffee shop person or the or the uh, doorman at the Biltmore, everyone is friendly and supportive. And um, it reminded me, we both also grew up in Manhattan at a time when a lot of families moved to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. New York, when we were growing up, was so much like a small town. I think that all neighborhoods have that. Maybe not now as much. Maybe people aren't quite as open or friendly. Maybe they're more on their guard than they were when we were kids. But um, Grand Central is or was a neighborhood. It was built and designed to be a city within a city and to have everything that you could need in one place. And um, indeed, it still does. And it certainly did in the time of Joe and Nora. there well, were, they had a movie theater, which they don't have anymore. Right. It was a newsreel theater. And, right. you know, movies were a, a brand new thing. Um, and, well, not a brand new, but pretty brand new. Um, and you could stop in there and catch up on the day's news as you were waiting for a train. There was a big clock in the back so that you wouldn't miss your train. Um, but the entrance... Just the entrance to the newsreel theater was this had a beautiful mural of the wor- of the of a map of the world and it had beautiful carvings and where where was that if you if you stand at the clock in the center of Grand Central Terminal mm-hmm. where would that newsreel theater have been I think that it was near where one of the tra- near the tracks that are sort of on your on the left side. As you're facing, well, you could face the clock from any side. Um, and it's been replaced by one of the food courts. It's a Zaro now. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. But but it was there for, for quite a while. And actually, I have a, f- a couple friends who remember being taken there by their grandparents or their parents and, and seeing a newsreel there. A lot wow. of things have come and gone from this place. I mean... There, clearly, there was no Apple Store there then, but um, now you're just making that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, fantasy. Yeah, no, New York. When we were growing up, I I want to say without bragging about how old I am that um, Fifth Avenue was a two way avenue. Mm-hmm. Buses were ten cents. I guess subways yeah. were too. Yeah. The the uh, Staten Island ferry, I think five cents. Five cents. Yeah. Um, and you knew people in your neighborhood, and if you needed, if you needed to go, there was no, there there were very few chains. Right? Were there chains? There were no. I don't chains. remember there being chains. There maybe were no A and P. Maybe the A and P. Which A and P for our listeners who are not young, not, not yet old, adult. Rather, uh, <laughs> the A and P was a grocery store chain, and yes. I think that was about it. I remember when McDonald's was moving to Manhattan. I was a sentient, maybe teenager or preteen, and and there were people in the neighborhood who thought it was a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, so and, yeah, and it turns out maybe it was. But but the fact is that New York was a very. It's almost like you could see a movie set in the '30s and '40s, and that's how it was until 1968. And then everything's either different. that or when it was 1968 and you were 10, you woke up and realized, oh, this isn't all 
safe and sound. Right. And you really do have to look both ways when you cross the street. And my brother did get mugged. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, and things changed. Yeah. And then, and now here we are with Hudson Yards and, <laughs> you know, the new landmarks. Have you been to Hudson Yards, by the way? No, I haven't. Um, it's a big shopping mall. Yeah. Uh, most of New York is a big shopping mall. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. <laughs> not for not for New Yorkers either. No, it's no. for tourists. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess I guess I have to be honest. The love I have for New York as it was has a lot to do with why I love the book. And again, it's called Time After Time. It's coming out next week, and it's published by Random House. Mm-hmm. And is there an audio book? There is an audio book. Oh wow! Which is also coming out next week. Um, now, did you read it? I didn't. I I like to think that I have a variety of talents, but narrating fiction is definitely not one of them. So I can I can read stuff I've written, but not in voices that of people that I've invented. So right. yeah, fortunately, it was in better hands than than mine. This would be a really great book to listen to. Also, yeah. I did my first time that I listened to a book. It was Asymmetry uh-huh. by Lisa Halliday, and I didn't realize that it was a three-part novel written in different voices. And I got so confused that I had to, as I was walking and listening, I had to walk to Barnes and Noble every day <laughs> and page through the book and try to find out where I was and what the hell was happening. We're so analog. That's the thing. Yes, we're analog. I want to say also that while you're at home, um, not following your husband on interesting business trips, you're also making fine art and folk art and and crafts. And I mean, I, you really are quite an exceptional doer. Well, and maker. Thanks. And creator. Um, thanks. I think that um, particularly. Um, for someone who has a chronic illness, you have to find ways to amuse yourself. I mean, you just do. And writers, as we know, live a somewhat solitary life anyway, at least when they're writing uh, or trying to write. But you add a chronic illness to it, and you start looking around saying, hmm, I've got to do, <laughs> got to do something today, and there are only so many closets you can clean. Uh-huh. So yeah, I've been, I've been doing um, artwork, and I've actually been writing some lyrics for some uh, songs, and that's fun. And um, I, I do what I can do. It ends oh. up being um, a little, little mom and pop shop we have at home, or at least a mom shop. But uh, you have to stay busy. Yeah, you do. You do. Um, okay, so Lisa, you have five things. I do have five things. Excellent. Let it rip. Okay, I really had to narrow these down because I was in a very up mood Good. as I wrote this list. But the first one is coffee. Yes. <laughs> coffee is an essential part of my life, and I believe it should be an essential part of everybody's life. I've actually been been pushing coffee on my children since they were very young. <laughs> um, uh, the thing about coffee is that, well, we know what it does for us and how essential it is and how delicious it tastes and all of that, but coffee in my life has a very special place. The first morning of my honeymoon with the aforementioned nifty husband, uh, he brought me a cup of coffee in bed. Uh And I said, this is 
heaven to be brought coffee in bed. And he said, I will bring you a cup of coffee every morning for the rest of our lives together. Oh, my God. So it was basically written into the ketubah, yeah. the marriage contract that a cup of coffee will be provided to Lisa every morning, at least every morning that we are in the same place. That Lisa, not this Lisa. Well, wait a second. Did he really? Yes. And he kept to it. And he did. Oh. So on the on the mornings when he's not there, it's, you know, I... I I understand how the other half lives, that there are people who don't get this treat every morning. He's an exceptionally fine coffee maker. And the truly sweetest thing is that when he has to go away on business, this morning he had to go to Toronto, for example, and he had to leave at 5.30. He had ginned up the coffee maker so that all I had to do was push the button. Oh, man. Yeah, no, he's... He's beyond sweet, but the coffee part of it. I mean, if it was, I'll bring you a glass of water every morning, that would have been nice. Yeah. But making the coffee. So coffee is high on the list of things uh, that make life good. You know, it's so interesting. First of all, your husband wins every award there is. (laughs) But, you know, coffee appears on so many lists, and it has been on mine. How would we survive without it? I I don't think that that it it would be possible. I think it may be in part, I don't know about you, but there were other vices in my life that I had to give up along the way. Right. Smoking being the biggest of them. And this was the only vice left to me. So I think I love it particularly because it is uh, something you can get a little bit too addicted to, but it really doesn't do you that much harm. And, you know, twice a week, the the science reporters say it's actually good for you. Oh, yes. And I, I the, clip those stories. Yeah. <laughs> the other ones I ignore completely. Exactly. They're, they're, they're just making those things they're up. They're filler. Okay. Number two. Number two is a broad category um, that I will call treasure hunts. I love finding things. I love finding facts when I'm doing historical research. I love finding bits and pieces that I can use in my collages and and artwork. Um, I think this started with my mother who made shopping. My mother died when I was very young, when I was 20, but she made, before long before that, she made shopping into, it was sort of our sport. And finding the bargain was so much sweeter than finding the thing. Yeah. You know, it was, there was the thing you were looking for. You were looking for a hat. But if you found a hat that was, you know, half price, it wasn't just about, ooh, I'm saving money. It was about, I found the treasure. Well, it's a victory. Absolutely. So for me, when I'm doing research for a historical novel, which I've now done, I mean, I've written six novels, but two of them have been historical, um, uh, set in another time. Delving into the past, going down those rabbit holes, um, looking at every little thing I can find about old Grand Central, old photographs, old newspaper articles, old um, newsletters that were um, put out by the central New York Central right. system. All of that is, for me, just the greatest joy. And probably of the books that I've written, um, one that I did with uh, 
the aforementioned husband, who really is not a perfect human. I want to emphasize that. Um, uh, we did two anthologies, three anthologies together. The first one was called Letters of the Century, and it was the 20th century as told in letters arranged chronologically by people who were famous and people who were not. This was the treasure hunt of a lifetime. Yes. I mean, not only was I looking through history books, but I would go to flea markets and look through old postcards and find really cool things. So I think finding and searching, searching and finding would be number two on the list, treasure hunts, mm -hmm. wh wh whatever the treasure is. I just, I love looking for things. So that's number two. Um, number three, I would say giving presents. I love, love, love to give presents. I also love to get presents. Um, I'm, I'm not shy about opening a present and being delighted with its contents and having just turned 64 days ago. I remembered that like most still children, there's something just wonderful about a birthday and, you know, people calling and giving presents and all of that. But but my figuring out what to give people is one of the great joys of my life. So my son, who just graduated from college, um, he wrote his thesis about um, old time, two old time radio shows. Uh, that started in the 30s, right before the war. And um, he, when he was a little little boy, he had these two good luck charms that were old Bakelite um, backgammon pieces. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they came from. They just appeared one day. One was red, one was yellow. They are made of Bakelite. They felt good in your hand. And Bakelite is very... Tactile. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's smooth just, and marble. It looks marbly. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. And these were good luck charms for him. And he still, I mean, he still in has a, them. they're in a drawer somewhere. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> knowing that he was going to graduate and knowing about those good luck charms, I started looking for something made of Bakelite. And I found an old radio, radio. from 1939. Oh, my God. How perfect. Yellow and read the same colors, and I had it, you know, refurbished and all that. That is the kind of joy that nothing else um, compares to, to, like, and that also is a kind of treasure hunt. Eureka! Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but and by the way, I agree with you. I mean, to find that perfect thing is such. It's such. Yeah, it's a. I once said great feeling to. Uh, friend of mine who was writing a book about shopping, actually, and, and there was a bit about gift giving, I said that my ideal would be that I could put gifts for people I knew, lay them out unwrapped on a table, and everyone would, would know, know whose was whose. Yeah. So um, that is a great joy. Yes. It's, it's when I give somebody a scented candle, it's a well-meaning defeat. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a sign of just, yeah. I gave up, I didn't have the time, I couldn't find it. The candles in the closet, in the gift closet that yes. used to be filled with um, kids' puzzles and right. you know the presents that you brought to uh, birthday parties right. are now filled with failed attempts, potential failed attempts at, at, at gift gifts. giving. Yeah. Mostly, mostly, in my case, scented candles. Yeah. We have to remember never to give each other candles. Never. Never, never. Okay. That's, that's done. Can't happen. Note to we self. To, we, <laughs> note to self, no candles right. for Lisa. <laughs> so, which, by the way, is not a bad title, title. for a children's book. Yeah. No candles for Lisa. Yeah. Um, okay, four is finite accomplishments. 
that also goes to the um, eureka moment. Yes. But when I get lost in distraction or worry too much about the plot of the novel I'm writing or anything else about something I'm writing, the thing I always come back to is that the absolutely authentic joy that I get in life is from writing one good sentence. I am okay with paragraphs and I'm okay with chapters and I'm even okay with books, but the joy of just one good sentence where you just know it feels right to have done it. But this is true with all tasks, small tasks. If you have ridiculously um, disproportionate ambition, as, as I do, then you have to be able to be happy with the small things you accomplish. And it can be cleaning a closet can give me the greatest joy. Um, getting the bills paid, doing the crossword puzzle, finishing the crossword puzzle, um, checking things off a list. I love lists yeah, so I that love. you can check things off them. Yeah. And so just being able to enjoy little accomplishments, I think allows you to enjoy big accomplishments as well. It sets you up for being able to, um, to say, okay, you know, this is done and it doesn't need to be taken apart, put back together again. It's done. Well, also, when you're a writer working alone day after day, you sort of one day rolls over to the next and you feel like, oh, I didn't finish this chapter. I have to finish it. Right. And it never it never really ends. So right. you so it's so great that feeling of pressing send I'm it's it's going there's nothing, away there's nothing like it actually somebody asked me to do something uh, put some quotes together from the book yesterday and and assign the page the actual page number so I opened the book for the first time to to look at the words rather than just to you know be happy about the, the typography <laughs> uh-huh. and I found a typo and now all books have typos somewhere but it was one of those moments of, I guess it's not really ever done because then if there's ever another edition, we've got to fix that fix typo. Yeah. But, you know, I've talked to lots of different writers about how they do their stuff. And for some people, it's uh, chapter by chapter or scene by scene. For me, I have a page quota. Um, so if I if it takes me five minutes to write five pages, I'm done for the day. If it takes me till the end of the day to write five pages, I'm done for the day then. But at least I get to say, okay, did my work for today. Cross it off. Cross it off. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good feeling. So, okay, finally, the fifth one is the sort of the upside of the internet. Um, And by that, I mean, as a writer, being able to hear from real readers. Uh, the downside of all of this um, social media we know. But for me as a writer, the upside is I've never been able to get a sense of what people feel when they're reading my books. And, you know, you get the reviews from the big newspapers or magazines, the fewer and fewer as days go by. Yes. Um, But to read from somebody in... Dubuque, um, that she wants to come to Grand Central Terminal 
to see the places that Joe and Nora have gone um, is just beyond moving. And uh, even the bad comments, um, the, you know, this didn't get to me or this... Um, so far, in the pre-publication um, wind-up, um, readers have been incredibly generous and, and, and nice. Um, I mean, they're always nice, uh, except for the ones who give you one star and don't tell you why. And yeah. I think there's a special place for them. Yeah. But um, being able to connect with people who are actually reading the books and telling each other about them... That's that's definitely a happy thing, and uh, makes it makes it creates a community that you never have access to, and never used to have access to as a writer. Um, sitting there, you know, creating uh, things in a in a study. Um, so yeah, between uh, Instagram and Goodreads and NetGalley, um, I get to hear from real readers, and that is a joy. I've never even heard of NetGalley. <laughs> okay, I'm going over there. I must tell you that the when when I had published the Preppy Handbook and it was the only time or you know, it was a it was a big success. It and, was a big deal. And there were a lot of people a lot of people bought it. It was also at the cash register and it was there, were, there was a poster that I remember being... That in. wasn't my poster. It wasn't. No, someone... Ripped you off? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. It I didn't mean to open a wound. Yeah, well, it's not a wound anymore. It's okay. healed over. Th- I mean, yeah. I, it's only been like 30 years, but <laughs> there are 40 years. I'm finally over it. But, you know, there was never... Other than seeing someone reading your book, yeah, which was a thrill... I will never forget how great that was. That's not a thrill that people have very much anymore That's because right. people are reading on their devices. Although on the subway, I see a lot of people yeah. reading books. But, you know, I I used to, because I was a spoiled brat, I used to think, oh, if only I'd written a song, then people, then I would know that it affected people. And I used to be so envious of singers who could put their microphone and point it to the audience and the audience knew every word but the internet is that for it, writers exactly it's uh, it's an audience that you actually get to hear from if not see right. and that is um, priceless yes yes well you are a priceless guest <laughs> and i am so glad you came in and i urge everyone to read or listen to time after time by the way, yeah. I'll just, I mean, it's an obvious question, but there is a song, Time After Time, Cindy Lauper. There is another book, I think, with this title. How did you settle on this, With given those? I started with, well, the book was originally going to be called Manhattan Henge, then it was going to be called Grand Central, and then I was researching what the popular hits were for a particular moment in the book where Joe, my main male character is listening to the radio. And I discovered that there was a Frank Sinatra time after time beautiful song um, having nothing to do with Cyndi Lauper's, but the words of which were perfect. Um, Time after time, I tell myself that I'm so lucky to be loving you. And I just, that had to be the title. So on the 
page of the epigram, there's the lyrics of that song. And then because we are in a sort of a time travel situation, there's also the lyrics of the Cindy Lauper song. See how excellent that is? And by the way, folks, there is the promise of a movie, right? Yes. Movie or is it a TV thing? Movie. The yeah. Ro- yeah. Uh-huh. The, the, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, the rights have been have been purchased and so there will exciting. be a movie. Yeah. And uh the, they seem serious about it. So Oh, so great. Yeah. Well, Lisa, have a fantastic summer. Thank you. You too. And you may be married to the unicorn. <laughs> you may be. I don't know. And he's married to one too. Thank you. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me. Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week was Lisa Grunwald, author of the new novel Time After Time, published by Random House. To find out more about her, please visit her website at lisagrunwald.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabirnbach.com, where you'll find links and photos about all the things we spoke about here today. This podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 